We would love it if you would go to donate.npr.org slash happy and support your local station and also support our show. We'll tell you more later. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm Linda Holmes. Now and then, something very creepy happens that involves technology. And people say, that sounds like an episode of Black Mirror. What is Black Mirror? It's an anthology series that started on British television and is now produced by Netflix. It tells stories about identity, privacy, and security, but also humanity and love. Black Mirror's fourth season, a set of six new stories, has just come out on Netflix. And today on Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're talking about the intrusive, the invasive, and the intense world of Black Mirror. Before we get started, let's meet the panel. With me is Glenn Weldon from the NPR Arts Desk. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Linda. Also here in D.C. is D.C. theater and film critic Chris Klimek. Hey, Chris. Hi. And joining us from New York is the co-host of the podcast, The Nod, from Gimlet Media, Brittany Luce. Great to have you back, Brittany. Great to be back. So I want to ask each one of you first. I'm going to ask Glenn first. Uh What was your favorite episode of the ones that you saw? There are six. Yep. Uh, it's not the one you think. No. It's not the USS Callister, which is the Star Trek riff. Yeah. It is Hang the DJ, which is the closest the show will ever come to a rom-com. Yeah. And I dug it so much. Do it. Uh, that episode is so smart about relationships. Yada, yada, yada. There's some science fiction in there, too. Yeah, it's true. All right. How about you, Chris? Favorite? You know, I haven't disliked any of them. I've watched five of the six. Uh-huh. Um, I think I'm going to talk about the one I watched most recently, which is Metalhead. Metalhead, a black and white kind of semi, uh, yeah, sort horror-y, of monstery, mysterious, apocalyptic. Yeah. It, it's the leanest of them. It's about yeah. 40 minutes yeah. long. Uh, I like that it posits some scary circumstances in the world that are not elucidated at yeah. all. There is one very specific threat that introduces all sorts of questions. But it's it's completely effective. It's, yeah. it's gripping. How about you, Brittany? Favorite? It's a toss-up between USS Callister and Hang the DJ. Yeah. But since Glenn already mentioned Hang the DJ, I'm going to go with USS Callister. I thought it worked on so many different levels. And, like, I just thought it was just really good storytelling. I was just, like, really, really engaged the entire time. The tension worked for me the entire time. And also, I kind of fell in love with some of the characters. Yeah. yeah. I, and I, I would have said, you know, that same toss-up. I think the toss-up for me was between USS Callister and, and Hang the DJ. Hang the DJ is a, a story about a relationship and kind of about a dating app ish world um, but something kind of yeah. more profound I, than that I thought that. of The Lobster a little bit that movie which we've me discussed too. Where, yeah. me too yeah, yeah. You, you pair up or you're turned into an animal yeah uh, so it's sort of about kind of the the imposition of technology on the idea of destiny which is so prominent in romantic tropes and then USS Callister as Glenn said is kind of a Star Trek not a kind of a Star Trek riff it is a Star Trek <laughs> a direct riff. Star Trek riff it then you know becomes not only, I think, very smart about tropes of science fiction, but also very timely. Yeah. It's very of the moment in yeah. a very particular way that's hard to explain other than by saying it talks a lot about power structure in a an idea like Star Trek, where you have a captain yeah, and a bunch yeah. of people who admire mm-hmm. him. You ultimately get a lot of kind of examination of 
how that power structure would play out. Yeah, uh, Star Trek is particularly ripe for this kind of examination because it's always cited as having been progressive right. in its time. Right. But mm-hmm. those progressive for 1966 episodes look pretty archaic now. <laughs> well, right, particularly because they have such a concentrated power structure, which is part of what USS Callister is Special about. shout out to uh, Jesse Plemons. Yeah, uh, for, so good. For doing For resembling sh- Glenn Weldon no, to no, 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 a distracting no. degree. <laughs> no. I've got to take that. Uh, no, just for doing a Shatner that is not Kevin Pollock's Shatner, yeah. which everybody does. Yeah. It's invaded the culture. He has found a different register, a different tone, and he nails it. And he's also giving a real performance. Like yeah. it's, he's not just doing a bit. So good. It's so yeah. many, there's so many layers to this. Another, Kristen Milioti is so good in that. I didn't realize that what the Star Trek universe needs every so often is the occasional eye roll. Uh, <laughs> but every time it would happen, because you're doing that at home. It's just doing what we've all been doing I, I as think we watch Star Trek. That episode in particular also really has several actors. Plemons is one. Yeah. Krista Milioti is one. Michaela Cole is yes. one. Yes. Who they are doing and have done in the last year or two a bunch of different interesting things. And I think those are all three actors where every time I see them, I sort of say, well, this will be something interesting because mm-hmm. they tend to mm-hmm. do something interesting with whatever they're given. You know, Jesse Plemons is in The Post, which is coming out right now as kind of prestige Spielberg, the Spielbergiest prestige Spielberg. Right. Um, but also is doing this kind of really weird, offbeat, you know, piece of work. But I think Michaela Cole is one of those people. We talked about Chewing Gum, the show that she made a couple seasons of. Yeah. And I think I'm starting to see her like pop up in other different kinds of things and it makes me super happy yeah talk to me a little bit about your uss callister thoughts Brittany. i have not seen more than like four episodes of breaking bad and i've never seen friday night lights so i had never seen jesse plemons before yeah and i was like who is this great undiscovered actor this guy yeah. is a genius <laughs> his performance was so 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 good he was so convincing on so many levels it reminded me of there was this really popular story in the New Yorker well, I don't know if it was popular like in the world but it was popular among like a lot of my colleagues in New York called Cat Person Yep. Oh, that yeah. was about a very particular type of guy that you encounter regularly in life as a woman and so much of Jesse Plemons performance uh, reminded me of notes of Cat Person mm-hmm. and just how real he was. He's played and a lot of creepers. He plays, played true. a lot of creepers. Yeah. So I was um, I was like that's sort of the bucket that I put him in and at that in that episode and I was just really impressed with how like I don't know with some of the range of as far as like in performance um, that I got from some of the, the actors and the characters throughout such a short piece. Yeah. And also too like I loved what it had to say about power I thought it was so interesting it was so satisfying and just the storytelling the way that the story unfolded it was so complex I think it was an hour and 16 minutes yeah and like all of it was deserved it had my attention for every single scene the entire way through this show is uh, four seasons in now and it's taught us how to watch it which is from a defensive crouch because (laughs) we know it's gonna get bleak and and sometimes the fun of an episode is where does the tech come in I haven't seen any tech yet where's the tech it's gotta be some tech it is an anthology series it's a genre anthology series which means generally they like to teach tidy moral lessons Mm -hmm. right in a horror anthology you get a moral failing caused by moral comeuppance Uh, and that's here but this show is so much interested in world building, but not in the kind of, you know, fantasy world building, but like in actually fully imagining how the tech 
du jour, du episode, will change the world. Not necessarily in huge ramifications, but in just like slightly smearing today's reality, mm-hmm. like fi- ahead five years. It's just so smart. So if science fiction can be thought of as a pair of running shoes, hear me out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with it. I'm, I'm going someplace with uh-huh. this, counselor. Uh-huh. Uh, some writers and filmmakers just slap on the shoes and start running because they think what we are interested in is the running. Yeah. This show, for example, uh, slips its foot in and then sort of wiggles the toes. Yeah. So it really gets comfortable because it wants to, like, for example, if it posits that a world uh, exists where insurance companies can get access to your memories, mm-hmm. as is true in the episode Crocodile, another science fiction writer would, would say, that's it. All those rights went away. Don't worry about it. This show is really interested in how we got from here to there, right? It's yeah. interested in there would be some legal wrangling. People don't surrender their rights. It's a slow process. We uh, know that very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this show is about all the subtle, tiny ways that whatever it's positing will change, will ripple, will affect how people re- interact. It's just so smart about that. That's the thing I love about it. I, I think there are some of these that you could do without a, a speculative tech in the middle. And I'm thinking of the the episode that Jodie Foster directed, Archangel, where Rosemary DeWitt plays this overprotective or maybe not overprotective parent who installs this surveillance system within her daughter, basically, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and how this changes their relationship as the daughter grows from childhood to adolescence. And you, I think, could tell this story without that tech. You don't need that device because it's really about the erosion of trust. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and maybe maybe that's yeah. what makes a, a slightly, you know, second tier Black Mirror episode and distinguishes it from one of the, you know, the truly outstanding ones. Yeah. The reason why that one, I think, was the least successful for me is that I thought what it had to say, not just about the invasiveness of tech, but also about people and the way people are, was the least surprising and, mm-hmm. yeah. and interesting. It was the least bold to me as far as what it was saying. Because I do feel like not only could you tell that story, that kind of story about the erosion of trust and overprotectiveness with parents, but I think people have told similar stories. And so that was the one I think was the least interesting. Whereas, you know, Glenn brought up Hang the DJ. It does have those romantic comedy rhythms, but it also is really full of ideas about romantic certainty and uncertainty Mm -hmm. and the role that uncertainty plays and the critical role in yeah. some ways that uncertainty plays. To return to, to Archangel, I think it's, a, you know, the total number of Black Mirror episodes produced so far is is what? It's like, it's it's about 20, right? Because there was a one-off like Christmas that. special yeah. with John Something Hamm. Like that. Um, and I think we, you know, we do kind of see it start to recycle a little bit there. There was a, a first season episode called The Complete History of You, which Oof. is basically the same scenario within a romantic relationship mm-hmm. instead of a, a parental relationship. And, and that one, I think, was better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned Metalhead. Uh, you know, this show is about tech, but it also uses tech in a really good way. Those CGI dogs looked so real. Are you sure they're CGI? Real. I'm yeah. not. <laughs> I think in many cases, in many cases, I'm sure there's actually a, an object it, there. They looked, yeah. And I mean, the fact that it's black and white makes it harder to right. tell. And the yeah. fact Smart. that they're sort of chrome. But no, I, think I completely. The, I think it masks some of the effects. I think it's a even, really smart decision. Even if they were CGI, the fact that it has that, uh, it, that it looks a little bit like stop motion and something about stop motion animation, even in when it's the California Raisins, is just terrifying to me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why I was uh, watching that one through my, my fingers covering my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Black Museum. um, That was okay. Liked it. Uh, I was talking to Chris about this and he said that that was remarkably pulpy. 
It, it was, yeah. I mean, I think like it's the you know the, the guy takes a drill to someone's face and so, like it's. It, I wouldn't put that one in the highbrow. It's Twilight uh, Zone. Yeah, what, what do you got, Brittany? That one in its construction reminded me a lot of White Christmas, and I think that ultimately White Christmas is a better episode. But Black Museum, it's like hard. It's, it's I will say that like there is a specific element of the episode that I found personally very gratifying. But I don't know if necessarily that makes for this episode being one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes or even one of the best of the bunch. Um, yeah, it was definitely pulpy. I think that, but I got the sense that that was like a stylistic decision just based upon even the guy, the main guy, Rolo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actor who played him, all of his choices were very, could have been like a villain in Planet Terror. Right. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Like, so it's just kind of like, okay, yes. I think that this is, a, even, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much, but like um, the general setting of the episode is in the Amer- somewhere in the desert in the American West. Yeah. Even that felt like a really specific type of decision mm-hmm. um, when really like, you know, th- that location could have moved, but like I felt like there were certain decisions that were made in the direction of that episode that meant that it was supposed to be pulpy on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I found elements of it extremely extremely satisfying especially like there were parts of the episode where I was kind of like um where is this going I'm not yes. really comfortable with yes. this like I definitely got like sick to my stomach my boyfriend and I were like uh, I don't know about this but then you know things kind of got righted but I would say that that episode I think for me it was kind of told vignette style and I sort of felt like Two out of three of the vignettes featured actors that I found less compelling than mm-hmm. the actors that were in the actual scene. Yeah. yeah. I do think it's the bluntest yeah, of I the agree. kind of the mind control sort of stories. Yeah. I think it's the because the whole season has a lot of stuff about yeah. sort of surveillance and being able to get in somebody else's. I, I think head what I meant by, by pulpy about that one is that it just uses that flashback structure, you know, which is very common to like Tales of the Crypt and, yeah. you know, <laughs> just horror anthologies in general. And it is very discursive. One of the vignettes has a credit that it was based on a story by Penn Jillette. I saw that. Which is, which is strange, right? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that you wouldn't either build that into an episode on its own mm-hmm. or just figure out, well, I have to shoehorn it into, into this other thing. I think it's, it's modular in a way that, yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe I am underestimating Charlie Brooker by, by saying this. But I do feel like if for some reason you had to turn that 70-minute episode into a 45-minute episode... You could start jettisoning vignettes, and maybe you could get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe uh, that Pendulet story, that little vignette, wasn't a full episode because it just couldn't sustain it. I mean, it's just it, that's entirely possible. Right. That episode, Black Museum, has a lot of little Easter eggs referring back to other episodes. So mm-hmm. you can go into this and see it in any order. But I would recommend saving Black Museum for last. Every season has a breakout episode, right? The first season, the breakout episode was the very first, the Prime Minister and the Pig. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was kind of a mission statement, right? It said, like, we're prepared to go this far. Second season, I don't really remember. Third season was, of course, San Junipero, about the couple. And again, that is another example, like Hang the DJ, where it's science fiction, not science fiction, right? (laughs) It's it's Uh more, it's touching the science to get a little energy off of it, but it's really about uh, two people. And so that's why I predict, even though the USS Callister has had all the advanced hype and it's got all the bells and whistles and certainly looks expensive as hell, uh, and it's got great acting, I think the breakout episode of this season is definitely going to be Hang the DJ. Interesting. 
What do you think, Brittany? Well, romantic comedies are my favorite genre of film, I think. So I was already had a soft spot for Hanging with the DJ, but also I just found the actors so charming. Me too. I found them so charming. Georgina Campbell is adorable. Joe Cole, like their chemistry was really, really good. Yeah. And also like I still felt hopeful, which is like such a rare feeling mm-hmm. <laughs> when watching Black Mirror. The other thing it has in common uh, with Send You to Peril is it's kind of hopeful. Uh, mm-hmm. Ending how mm-hmm. it's there's it's it's alone in the season for being something close <laughs> to uplifting. Well, I think that you can say that on Black Mirror and maybe in the mind of Charlie Brooker, like they don't believe in a lot of things that are hopeful. Yeah. They believe a lot of things about humanity that are very very bleak, but believe in individual personal relationships being meaningful. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like on the micro level kind of believes in human beings loving each other, Mm -hmm. but on the macro level has no faith in humanity at all. (laughs) I I mean, I think San Junipero and Hang Hang the DJ are both great episodes. I think San Junipero particularly would not have had quite the impact that it had had the show's brand for sort of cruel dismal irony exactly. right at the end have, having been so firmly established because yeah. mm-hmm. that one really subverts an expectation that the show you know had up to that point worked really hard to to build yeah yeah I mean final word on Hang the DJ uh, rom-coms are not my thing good writing good performance is watch the first 30 seconds of their interaction I knew at that moment I'm going to like these characters. These characters have chemistry. I'm going to want to see what happens to them. It's just fantastic writing, really good acting, all in the first 30 seconds. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very, very good. All right, six episodes of Black Mirror have just dropped. We will be curious to hear what you think about them. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH. It is time for our favorite segment, What's Making Us Happy This Week. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week, buddy? I had a board game weekend this weekend. Five different games, and because you're stuck at home probably with your family still, because it's still holidays, then here's five different recommendations. First, a shout out to Labyrinth Games here in D.C. The very kind people hooked me up. Mysterium, which has been recommended on the show before by one Margaret H. Willison, is kind of Clue. If Clue were fun, you're trying to convey to the investigators through pictures. A lot of fun, a lot of setup, uh, a lot of really big logistical setup, but uh, you can't play it with just three people. You need more. That's the conclusion. Evolution is a very smart game where you uh, try to grow a uh, species and give it all kinds of traits and it, it adapts and you attack other species. Very smart game. Too smart for me. Too many rules, conditional rules, sub rules that, that you have to kind of keep track of, especially if you enjoy uh, the occasional postprandial tipple, as I do. Uh, it's not a sh- it's not a game to start and not know how to play oh after dinner, after you've had a few. It bested me. We didn't even get through the game. Splendor is a game where you are a gem merchant and you have to earn prestige from passing nobles. Uh, very simple, very straightforward, quick to learn. It's lying to you because it has all this bells and whistles about how it's about gems. It's really just math. This mm. game is secretly math. No, thank you. Jiraku. It's another one of these games where uh, every round has five phases, and you're like, oh, just too many phases. But once you master the logistics, it's a lot of fun. You're a, you're a warlord in Japan. You're trying to get to Kyoto with your samurais and the ninjas. Chris was not a fan uh, because he said somebody found a way to make ninjas boring. But I, I still think it's great and by far the best. The the one that won the weekend. It's called Love Letter. It's a card game where you play uh, different uh, nobles and you have to interact with each other. It is so easy to pick up and play. It is so fun and it is so over quickly. Uh, That's also all important. So Love Letter, pick it up. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon, Chris Klemek. What is making you happy this week? 
Well, Linda Holmes, I am a 12 days of Christmas person. And Mm -hmm. when this drops on December 29th, listeners, according to the metric system, will have eight days remaining to delight in my Christmas mixtape. Yay! When people come up to me and they say, Chris, you are like the Alan Lomax of Christmas. You are the (laughs) girl talk of the holidays. I blush a tasteful seasonal crimson and I say... Yes. I have lamented in print about our failure to replenish the holiday pop canon in a timely manner. So every year I try to do my part by digging up the strangest historical specimens that I can find. Uh, Possible my MacArthur Fellowship has gotten lost in the mail or something. Mm -hmm, I figure. But like John McClane at Nakatomi Tower, I (laughs) persist. Uh, Oftentimes it turns out that history rendered a just verdict when it selected these songs for extinction. But that is for the long-distance Haldeckers and Merrymakers in our audience to decide. So... Here is a supercut of some of the wonders and horrors that await you on this year's tape. You're the very doll I want for Christmas. One that gives real kisses and breathes Wow. I don't want another single thing for Christmas. I'll take one of you in every side. Oh, boy. <laughs> you see, I realize it's Christmas time. And that's when every man wants to be with his woman. Hey. Oh, Amid the glistening snow, a riding we will go. It's Christmas time in Canada, we want you all to know. 32 feet and eight little tails they fly. Faster, faster, faster through the sky. Good Christmas love. Only 88 seconds left. <laughs> come on, come on, and let me ride that sleigh, because I know you want it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got Christmas tree lights in the front of my truck, because that's where I'll be Christmas. All right, listeners, you have there, in order of appearance, Marty Robbins, Marvin Cease, Wilf Carter, Gene Autry, making yeah. a third failed attempt to uh, repeat <laughs> after Rudolph, and here comes Santa Claus with the all-timer non-hit, 32 feet, 8 little tails. <laughs> Followed by H-Town, Knocking Boots for Christmas, oh, Red yeah. Simpson, and then the Gunter Kalman Choir to shut it down. Uh, that <laughs> is my, my 2017 mixtape. Get it at an internet near you. All right. Thank you very much, Chris Klimek. Brittany Luce, what is making you happy this week? I don't know if I have anything half as exciting as what Chris just brought us, but I saw Coco a couple of weeks ago. Nice. Me and my co-host at the Nod, Eric, uh, we he like he he has like a daughter, so he's like more in, and he like likes cartoons, so he's like more into like what cartoon movies are out. I personally, me myself, I didn't really like cartoons that much when I was a kid, and I really don't like them as an adult at all. But he wanted to see Coco. He fought for it, so he went to see Coco. I cried the entire time. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. I would watch it again in a heartbeat. I probably, if, if I could manage, I'd probably watch Coco once a week. I have not been able to shut up about it. But something that I have really been enjoying is this soundtrack. The soundtrack to Coco 
has all of these songs um, that are in Spanish or, or that are like pop versions of songs that are in the movie that didn't make it into the U.S. film but are on the soundtrack and they are amazing. I don't speak Spanish, but I can understand bits of it. Like I can understand a lot of things in Spanish if they're like said slowly enough, which is why music is great. Nice. Because people sing much slower than they talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Spanish versions of the songs are gorgeous. Wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, including Brittany Luce uh, on the Coco soundtrack. Um, What is making me happy this week? I have been checking out the Amazon series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, which uh, is done by Amy Sherman Palladino, who you might know from a little show, The Gilmore Girls, um, or Bunheads, which, by the way, if you love Bunheads, it's on Hulu now, Uh so you can check out Bunheads. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is about a woman in the 1950s whose uh, husband, who, who her marriage breaks up, and she decides to become a stand-up comedian. I don't love everything about it. It definitely has strengths and weaknesses, I think. But it is a little different for Amy Sherman Palladino. It's not quite as verbally dialogue-driven. It still has her kind of energetic dialogue, but it's not quite so cute dialogue-driven, and I say that with great love. And I really like the performance of Rachel Brosnahan, who plays the central character. She's wonderful. Mm. And they are playing some really interesting music um, in this show, some of which is stuff that is way too corny for most people, but that I really love. There's one episode where they play a Barbara Streisand performance of the extremely offensive Cole Porter song, Come to the Supermarket in Old Peking, Oof, yes. which I never get to listen to because the lyrics are terrible and cringeworthy. <laughs> but it is also Cole Porter being really good at writing lyrics and Barbara Streisand at the time, in like the 1960s, being great at this kind of singing. It, you're better off listening, just listening to her do uh, Don't Rain on My Parade. <laughs> but, uh, but it's an interesting musical kind of artifact. And it's really a lot of fun. So Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, streaming on Amazon from the mind of Amy Sherman Palladino and the brilliant central performance of Rachel Brosnahan. So that is what is making me happy this week. Before we go, thanks to all of you who have already been to donate.npr.org slash happy. We want more of you to go to donate.npr.org slash happy. That's how you support your local public radio station and also support our show. Throw us a tweet. Tell us why you gave. Use the hashtag WhyPublicRadio. It means a lot to us, and we really, really thank you for that support. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Glenn at GH Weldon. You can follow Chris at CT Clinic. And you can follow Brittany at BM Loose. That's B M L U S E. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K A T Z I F. Mike's band Hello Come In provides our in and out music that you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks so much to all of you guys for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And we will see you all back here next week. <laughs>